All right, so we're in Galatians chapter 3. Paul begins with these words, O foolish Galatians. And it is such a heavy statement, you know. What a, what a tough way to start off the passage, you know. Um, he is frustrated with them. And frustrated for a very, very specific reason is because of their willingness to so quickly, as he says back in chapter 1, so quickly consider another gospel, a false gospel. And the false gospel that they were considering, man, it seems kind of subtle. It kind of seems like a subtle distortion of the message. But ultimately what it's doing is the same thing that any false gospel does. It just tears the heart out of the message. You know, so they might talk about God and Jesus and church, and they might, they might sing songs together and maybe serve the poor, uh, but the heart of the message is just torn out. And so it's kind of like if you imagine a car with no engine. You know, on the outside, it looks like a perfectly good car. Everything's fine. Looks like a great car. You know, you might, you know, kick the tires. Yeah, it looks fine, you know. But if it has no engine, it's worthless. And that's really what a false gospel is like. That's what he's getting at. So the situation that Paul is dealing with, just a bit of a recap, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are all the non-Jewish people. And so Paul is the the apostle to the world, basically. Paul is, is going out to take the gospel everywhere beyond the nation of Israel, out beyond to the the Gentile peoples. And the way he did this was to go out and establish gospel communities, churches, that would then reproduce and spread that message beyond. And that works really well as long as they're reproducing the true gospel. But if they ever get a distorted version, then it's a little more like a cancer cell, right? And, And cancer's no good. So so he wants to make sure that they have the gospel right. But in this, this letter to the Galatians, he's not mainly concerned about generations down the line. He's concerned for them, right? Because if they drift from the gospel, well, it's a salvation issue. They're, they're not with Christ if they drift from the gospel. And so he's focused on this. So what's the distortion of the truth that he's dealing with? So the, the distortion of the truth, if you simplify it to its you know, distill it down to the main thing, the distortion was that Jesus is not enough. That was, that was the essence of what these, they were called Judaizers, these false teachers were teaching. Now, that sounds really extreme. So how did they get there? Why would they say Jesus is not enough? So here's how they got there. Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. He's the appointed king who would come and fulfill all these promises from the Old Testament. He'd take away the sins of the people. He would set the captives free. He'd turn the heart of Israel back to their God. So you have the false teachers who start with that truth. And all of that's true. But here's what they did. They came to the wrong conclusion. So they concluded that if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, then people need to become Jewish to follow the Messiah. Right? They need to become so if you if you want to follow Jesus, you have to go through a Jewish gate, basically. And so that's the message. And so it's not surprising, actually, that they would think this. So if you know a little bit of history in that part of the world, um, there was a long history of Jewish mission work all out in the Roman Empire. For a solid hundred years, Jewish people would go out and they would win converts. 
um, folks that would become known as God-fearing Gentiles. And so they would go out and they would reach the Gentiles. And uh, these God-fearing Gentiles would follow the law code, you know, and they would stop worshiping idols and stop eating pork and things like that. Begin worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And so there's like a hundred years of this mission work that's gone on. And that's part of why everywhere Paul goes, right? You read through the book of Acts, everywhere he goes, he goes to the synagogue first. Why are there synagogues all over the Roman Empire? Have you ever thought about that? Well, it's because of all this mission work. And so all the Jewish proselytizing, all this effort um, had gone on. And so everywhere Paul goes, he's, he's taken the gospel. He first goes to the synagogue because he knows they've heard, they've at least heard of the Jewish Messiah. And he's hoping that he can start there and then reach that community. So the whole situation, you know, it sounds cool that all these people have basically been prepared for this message. But there's a temptation in the midst of that, this little subtle thing in the midst of that. You know, all along, all this Jewish mission work, it comes along and says, okay, now you just have to basically become Jewish, right? So now the Jewish Messiah is here. Hey, same deal. Just become Jewish, and then you can follow Jesus too. And Paul says, no. (laughs) We have a major problem with this. Um, so, So the false teachers are claiming to follow Jesus. First, you have to follow Moses. And in practical terms, what that means is that for the Gentiles, Jesus is not enough. They also need all this other stuff. So all that's background. Um, There's there's one more piece of background that I want to bring to you, and and it's a story that many of us are probably familiar with, and it's in the book of Acts. So consider how God prepared them to deal with this issue. So it's Acts chapter 10. It's a guy named Cornelius. Cool name. Acts chapter 10. And I just want to walk you through this story of how God prepared them to deal with this particular false doctrine that was creeping up. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1. I'll read through most of this story. It says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, what that means is he was a Roman soldier, um, but he was like a battalion leader. You know, he's, he's up a few ranks leading a group um, over what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God. Okay, there's that God-fearer language. He feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, probably a believing soldier, from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so, so this centurion, Cornelius, has this vision from the Lord, and he's just blown away. This is amazing. God heard his prayers, a Gentile, and, and wants to give a message to him through, through Peter, who he's 
probably heard of. Probably heard of. Go out, get Simon Peter, bring him. So verse 9, the next day, as those guys are on their journey, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about high noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, now these are all the things that he's not supposed to eat. Okay, modern equivalent, we might think, you know, there's like, there's cats and there's some mice, maybe an armadillo or two, you know, just weird stuff. What? That's, that's not lunch. I, I don't want to eat cat for lunch. You know, that just, no. So Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And it's not just that it's weird and icky. It's also religiously, it's against the law. He's not supposed to, to eat this stuff. And the voice came to him a second time again. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You know, by the third time, you're starting to get the point. <laughs> okay, God's trying to get something across here. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision, vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So he has this vision, and right then, these guys show up. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. He just had this vision three times. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. And to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So you can imagine what Peter's thinking. Okay, whoa, this vision seems to be immediately related to these, these folks showing up. And then they, they exchange some pleasantries and, and you know, kind of relate what led to this event. And then in verse 34, Peter responds. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in just a second, but Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, which was like God's mark of authentication. This one is real. This one is from me. It's God's stamp of approval on Jesus that he received the Holy Spirit. Um, so God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we, Peter says, we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. So Peter comes and he clarifies, okay, I, I, I don't know how much you know, but let me make sure you know this. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness of sins. And while Peter, verse 44, was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And they were saved at that moment. And it's so cool because, you know, Peter, Peter thinks he's still in the middle of his message. <laughs> God just did the work. They're saved. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Again, the Spirit arriving on them was the authentication from God. It's God's stamp of approval. These ones are saved. They're with me. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? We, we, we got the Spirit back on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Um, these people, these Gentiles, have received the Holy Spirit. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. I would. Could you stick around and explain a few things? Um, so you have this background, and the startling thing for Peter was that they received the Holy Spirit. These are Gentiles. They, they, they're not in yet. You know, some of them are God-fearing Gentiles, whether they're circumcised or not. It sounds like they're not, because at one point it says, verse 45, it distinguishes between those who were circumcised and then the folks that Peter's talking to. Right? So these are uncircumcised Gentiles who receive the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the background. And so the Judaizers, these false teachers, their, their thinking is you need Jesus plus circumcision, plus the Jewish rules, plus the other stuff. You need all this stuff, and then you can be a Christian. The good news of the gospel is we come to, faith, we come to Jesus by faith alone, Right? All we need is Jesus. We come straight to Jesus without anything else. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look in Galatians here of how Paul talks to the Galatians and explains all this. So how many of you have taken geometry in school? Most of us. Anybody just love geometry? Geometry is great, wasn't it? <laughs> really? Kara, you enjoyed? Yeah, so I didn't particularly. I loved math, but when I got to geometry and it's like, okay, we need to do the proofs. Those geometry proofs were not my favorite. So, you know, geometry proofs, you've got like A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C, right? You remember geometry proofs, right? Like that's how, how that works. If you're younger, if you haven't had it yet, it's going to be great, Isaac. You're going to love it. Yeah. Oh, are you in it right now? Okay. So, um, so that's kind of what Paul's doing is he's 
Paul, you know, one, one thing about this is he says, you foolish Galatians. What he does not mean is you have low IQ, because <laughs> he's going to take them through these proofs and explain in, in three different ways this logic, you know, that he's going to lay out for them. So it's kind of like geometry proofs, or if you want to think of it as like Paul's like a lawyer, and he's presenting evidence for his case, you know, you could think of it that way. But basically what he's going to do is there's three sections we're going to look at. Three different times he makes more or less the same point, which is, why would you leave what you received by faith? This is a good thing you have. Don't wander away. Okay, so, so let's, let's look at how he builds this case. So let me just, you know, it's been a little bit now since we read this. Let, let me read verses 1 through 6 again. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, you, you remember the story, at least with Cornelius' group, that it was by hearing with faith, right? Same thing, same kind of thing would have happened in Galatia. Maybe not with quite the huge expression of, of activity, but, but they received by hearing with faith. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he begins by dealing with kind of their experience, right? He's, he's going to talk to them, this, this little section, from their own personal experience of what they saw. And he, he starts off with this phrase, who has bewitched you? Really weird, you know, almost like who cast a spell on you? That's kind of the, the imagery there. And um, it, it could be that he's suggesting there's a spiritual thing going on here, right? At very least, he's saying, who are you listening to, right? Why are you listening to these guys? Um, you saw Christ publicly portrayed as crucified, not meaning they were there, but they had it portrayed before them, almost like on a billboard, like it was laid out for you. You know about Christ pr- crucified. And so here's, here's his, his little geometry proof, okay? Here's his steps. So the first step is the Spirit came to you as a gift, not something you earned, okay? So if the Spirit came as a gift, and then the Christian life doesn't change after you get saved, Right? And you suffered all these things for your faith, right? Why would you just throw this away for that other false gospel, right? So he's laying out evidence. He's laying out evidence. Um, One interesting comment here. I don't normally do this. But the word pasco appears in this passage. So I felt like I should bring it up, right? (laughs) So so the word in Greek for, for to suffer, like I suffer, is the word pasco right? I don't know what to do with that, but, but it's there, you know? So, so in, in uh, you know, I think it's the New Living Translation. It talks about the things you've experienced. The word can mean just to experience something, but by this point in time, it had pretty much taken on the connotation of it's to experience something negative. You've suffered stuff. I don't know what to do with that, but that's your, that's your takeaway for the morning. Hope, hopefully not. So anyway, he, he lays out, like you guys have probably suffered persecution for this, right? You, you've dealt with all this stuff. It makes no sense to abandon what you received by faith. Now, here's how this relates to us. 
I think verse 3 is a really important one that we should cling to. It says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Um, You know, we, we talked last week about this word justification, right? That you are declared righteous through your faith in Christ. That it's kind of like a a once momentary thing that God does at the beginning of your Christian life. When you come by faith, you are declared righteous. But then there's this other term, sanctification. You are sanctified. It's kind of that ongoing process of where God's changing you through, you know, through this process to become holy, right? You are declared holy. You are then made holy in practice. Now, here's how a lot of Christians do this, right? Okay, so so you come by faith. And all that junk that you had in the past, it's over, right? You are declared righteous. And now from this point forward, it's all up to me. I just got to knuckle down and do it, right? I got to be a good person because now I'm a Christian. And so I guess I got to stop all those bad habits and, and all that, right? So in practical terms, what we're doing is we're saying you're saved by faith, but then you, you got to do it all. It's all up to you, right? It's going to take a lot of hard work and, um, and you, better, you better be good. <laughs> or else. And so then it becomes this whole thing of trying to earn God's favor instead of recognizing the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So let me talk about what that looks like in practical terms. Um, what does it look like then to, to live this out? Well, let's say uh, I'm going to just take a, an example, a random example, one that I don't necessarily ever feel um, the temptation for. But let's say you're tempted to cheat on your taxes, Okay, you're feeling really tempted to cheat on your taxes. I don't know why. You, you don't like the government. You don't want to pay the money or, or you feel like it's unjust or whatever, whatever the thing is. Or you just need more money. Um, you're tempted to cheat on your taxes. Now, there's two approaches to how you handle that temptation, right? One is you look at this temptation and you say, that's bad. I need to be good. Um, I need to show what a good person I am so that God's impressed. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder. I'm not going to do that. Um, I have a, a friend. Uh, we, we have a friend, uh, Nate, who lives down in Los Angeles now. Um, I went to seminary with him. Before that, um, we worked together um, back in Colorado. So I've known him for years. And he was a pastor's kid. He grew up um, going to church all the time. His dad's the pastor. And when he was about 12 years old, he got saved, came to faith in Christ. And um, he's 12 years old. And um, this was a little more traditional church. They had Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night services, you know, like churches almost always did before. And um, so his dad said, well, son, would you like an opportunity to preach? (laughs) He's 12 years old. And Nate's like, yes, this would be amazing. And so one Sunday evening, shortly after he got saved, Nate preached his first sermon at age 12. And his sermon was called Stop Sinning. That was pretty much the point of the message. <laughs> stop sinning. <laughs> just, just stop. <laughs> you know, he's, he's excited. He came to Christ. Stop sinning. And um, I think a lot of us, you know, that's kind of how, that's kind of the, the level we get up to. You know, we've reached, we've reached 12-year-old Nate uh, of, like, stop sinning, you know. Um, so, so one way is the stop sinning method. Just try harder. The other method is what Paul is talking about here, okay, and that is faith in Christ, okay, it is by the Spirit of God exercised through our faith in Christ. 
Now, the result's going to hopefully be the same. Hopefully, you're going to stop sinning. But it looks different for how we get there, and our motivation in our heart is different. So here, here's what this looks like. Okay, so you're tempted to cheat on your taxes, okay? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. I'm going to trust Jesus that honesty is the right thing. And he knows better than I do, so I'm going to trust him on this. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of all your food and clothing and stuff like that. Okay, I'm going I'm to trust Jesus that as I follow him, he's going to take care of my needs. So, so maybe I need a little extra cash. I'm going to trust Jesus for that little extra cash instead of cheating on my taxes. Now, you see the difference there, right? So one way is that's bad. I'm going to try harder. The other way is I'm going to trust the Lord in the midst of this. And so back in Galatians 2.20... Paul says, uh, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's what he's getting at. It's not the life that I now live, I, I live by trying to be a really good person, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow all the rules and all that stuff. Now, again, it flows out. It looks the same at the end. Yes, you don't cheat on your taxes, obviously, right? You shouldn't do that if you're a child of God and you're representing him. But how you get there, it's through faith in Christ that you get there. Let me give you another um, example. Let's say you're tempted to look at inappropriate pictures on the internet. Well, there's two approaches to this. You know, one is, that's bad, be good, try harder, show God what a good person you are. Um, I've known a lot of guys that struggle with that, and, and what I've, I've seen is that um, guys that are trapped in addiction, that, that try harder method just doesn't seem to work very well for them. Um, here's the other option which is faith in Christ. Trust the promises of God. Okay, so God said it's not good for a man to be alone, and he provided a woman, an actual real-life woman, not a picture, like a real one. Um, God said it's good for a man to be joined to his wife, right? Not to all the other ladies, but to his wife. Um, Jesus said it's not just adultery that's really destructive, it's also, um, it's also lust that can be really destructive. In fact, so much so that he says it's better to lose your eyes than to be cast into hell, right? So, so it's really serious. And so out of that, um, you know, do, does that mean that, I, that I, you know, I, I hear those promises of God and I just try harder? Well, not exactly, right? Like I, I hear those promises of God and it renews my faith in him, right? And I, I, need, to, I need to renew my faith in him and take him at his word. You know, the very first temptation that mankind ever faced, man and woman ever faced, was in the Garden of Eden. And and you know the story. Their problem was that they didn't take God at his word. They didn't trust the word of the Lord. They thought that somehow God was holding out on them, that they'd be better off if they ate this fruit. Right? It was just a piece of fruit. Was the fruit the temptation itself? Well, it was more like, I think I know better. That's the temptation. So what Paul shows us here, when he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is no, right? It's implied no. You are being perfected. This process is happening by the Spirit of God in you. And it's happening on our end through faith, through faith in Christ. And as we continue to exercise faith in Christ, it transforms what we do, how we live, all of that. That we need to live by faith in Christ. And so... You know, Paul shows they're sanctified by faith, and the result of that is they shouldn't abandon the faith. Okay, so let's move on to the, the next little section.
Okay, verses 7 through 9. And this one he's going to look at, you know, the first one's all about their experience. This one he's going to talk about, about history. Let's do a little bit of ancient history. Okay, so real quick, it's about the year 2023. About 2,000 years ago was Jesus. About 2,000 years before that was Abraham. So Paul's going to do a little bit of ancient history for them. So he says, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So let me, let me walk you through his logic again. Abraham received the blessing through faith. Okay, anybody that has faith is the son of Abraham gets the blessing too. Okay, so he got it through faith. We can get it through faith. And that includes everybody. That's, that's his logic. Okay, that's, that's where he's going with this. And so we're included as sons of Abraham. We get the blessing of God along with him. And Abraham wasn't perfect. Right? He's a very imperfect man, and yet he had faith. That was the really good thing about Abraham. And so we can join in and be sons of Abraham because we can have faith. And then the last section here, verses 10 through 14, Paul builds his case not from experience, not from history, but now from the law itself. Okay, now, the Judaizers, this is their territory, right? They, they, they've got the law, right? And so they're, they're thinking, okay, if we go to the law, it's going to prove our point. Well, look at what Paul does here, 10 through 14. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For, it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, it's fascinating what Paul does here. Uh, He was obviously a good student of the Old Testament, put all of us to shame. Um, what he does is he goes back to a passage in Deuteronomy that must have have been a really serious one for him. And that passage is Deuteronomy chapter 21. Let me just read it here. Deuteronomy 21, and it's verses 22 and 23. And here's what the law says. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man, or for a hanged man, is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, before Paul met the risen Jesus, that particular passage in Deuteronomy might have been one of the major reasons he couldn't possibly follow the Messiah. Jesus. Why would, you know, he could, he could look at Jesus and see many things about him probably, but how could the Messiah be cursed by God, right? At face value, that doesn't make any sense, 
How could the Messiah be cursed by God? And here's Jesus, the, the supposed Messiah, who is cursed by God by being hung on a tree. And so you could see how that would have been a stumbling block for him and probably for other Jews. But then when he meets the risen Jesus, and he has to reconsider this, he understands what he explains here, that Christ took that curse in our place, right? Because we were cursed by the law, not because it's bad to follow the law. The problem is, if you're trying to follow the law, you have to keep all of it. And nobody does. And so we are under a curse. This is Deuteronomy 27 that he's talking about there, that that we're under the curse because we didn't keep all of the law. And so ultimately, Jesus takes that curse through this one little footnote in the law about being under a curse if you're hung on a tree and all of that. Jesus takes that curse upon himself so that we are free from that. So the, the proof, you know, your geometry proof again, okay? So those who fail to keep the law are under a curse. Jesus took the curse. And so if we're in Jesus, we're free from the curse. We're under the blessing of Abraham if we're in him by faith, right? And so then he tacks on this little thing, and included in that is the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit too as, as part of this. And so the conclusion of each of these sections is, why would you walk away from what you have received so clearly by faith? You know, if if he's a lawyer, at this point he says, I rest my case. You know, actually he doesn't. He continues on in the book of Galatians and builds the case even further until there's no chance we miss it. That this is by faith in Christ. It's not earned through the works of the law. So the good news for us, We're we're all Gentiles here, I think. The good news for us is that Christ took the curse upon himself. All of you theology scholars, that that is substitutionary atonement. That's That's the theology term for that. He took that curse upon himself so that we can come by faith in him. So no matter who we are, right, whether, whether you're, you're like the righteous Jew, you know, who's, who's tried hard his whole life, or you're just the pagan godless Gentile that's just like all into idolatry and immorality of every sort and all that, no matter who you are, the ground at the cross is level. That's what Paul's getting at. Everybody comes by faith. Abraham, he came by faith. Oh, he's an okay guy. Eh, he's got some faults, but... He came to God by faith, right? And that's how we come to God. And so I just want to encourage you guys to live, live out your Christian life that way. I don't know where everybody's at in the room. Um, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, uh, what an amazing offer, right, that is laid out before us, that there is salvation in Jesus regardless of our background, right? And you Look at ancient Rome and and the stuff going on back there. They probably have us beat in terms of immorality and stuff, and the gospel was for them. And so I I just want to encourage you, you whoever we are, that we need the good news of Jesus. But then if you have put your faith in Christ, I just want to encourage you guys to continue putting your faith in Christ. And I think that's, that's the thing, man. We need the gospel preached to us every day, every single day. We need to to remind ourselves of these truths that it is still by faith in Christ that we live our lives. And so 
as you think about this, like how does this, how do you, how do you bolster your faith? Because there are times, right? There are times where we struggle in our faith. And so I just want to mention a couple of these um, that, that I think are really helpful for us. And, and the first one is just look for ways to remind yourself of God's promises. Um, you remember back in, in Deuteronomy 6. I'll read a passage for you. You'll probably recognize it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You shall go to um, Hobby Lobby and buy those little signs and hang them around your house. And you shall, I mean, all that stuff, right? So you are... You are supposed to put reminders around. You're supposed to talk about this all the time. Why are we supposed to talk about it all the time? Well, it's because we are so prone to forget and so prone to wander that we need these reminders in our life to live by faith. Because, you know, tomorrow's a new day and and we can easily forget. Um, And so what he's saying you know, find ways to remind yourself of the promises of God. That's one of the reasons why, you know, daily Bible reading is encouraged. You know, I've been, I've been doing daily Bible reading as, as much as I can for a long time. You know, you'd think by now I'd have it, you know. Why do I still need to keep reading this book? I've, I've gone through it already, you know. I don't do that with other books, but um, it's because I'm so prone to forget and I need to remind myself of the promises of God if I'm going to live that way. So that's good, but sometimes, you know, I read these promises, and just a little bit of self-deception goes a long way, you know, (laughs) a little bit of rationalizing goes a long way. Sometimes I need people around me that I can lean on their faith. Um, Sometimes that's Kimberly, that's my wife. Um, One of the the cool things in our marriage is we're both believers, and usually the days that um, I'm struggling in my faith, she's strong. And, and then the days that she's struggling in her faith, I'm strong. Um, it's the, the rough days are the days that we're both <laughs> despairing. Those are hard days. But, but usually we can help each other. We can lean on each other's faith. And I think that's, that's a big part of what church is about, right? Is we need each other's encouragement to bolster our faith so we can continue living for Christ. Um, one last one. You remember there's that story in the Gospels. Um, Jesus... This is Gospel Mark, Mark chapter 9. Jesus um, uh, goes out and he's talking with this father. And this father wants his son to be healed. And his son, I believe, was um, convulsing and demon-possessed and all this stuff. And he goes up to Jesus and he says, um, Lord, will you, if you can, would you heal my son? <laughs> Jesus is like, if I can, yes, I can heal your son, you know. Um, all you have to do is believe. And the dad says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? I mean, what a great statement. I believe all the times except for when I don't. I, I believe, you know. I, I'm struggling a little bit right now, but, but I believe. And, and I think that little statement is, is powerful. I believe. Help my unbelief. So, so we, we go to God's word for reminders. We lean on each other for encouragement in the faith. Um, But then we also go to God and we just say, Lord, I'm struggling here. Could you help my faith? 
could you help me to have more faith in this? Um, we're we're going to, in just a minute here, um, go to the Lord's Supper and, and be reminded again of these good things. Um, Dan, Dan, in a moment, will come forward, but l- let me just pray and give thanks for the amazing things that God has provided for us. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I thank you, Lord, for... Um, this beautiful reality, Lord, that we are not just justified, declared righteous by faith, but Lord, the whole Christian life is lived by faith. That ultimately, God, you are the one who saves, period. Lord, we don't save ourselves anywhere along the way, Lord. You are the one who saves. Lord, help us to live in that reality. Help us to live confident in the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to our account, that, Lord, you have counted us as righteous, Lord. Father, I pray that you would also bolster our faith. Lord, help us to grow in our faith in Christ. And Lord, may every one of us here have a confident, secure faith in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name.